0: Hello my friends. This is your Definitely Storytime host, Jamie. And if you're here, it's definitely storytime. So let's settle in and get comfortable. Or whatever it is you prefer doing while you listen. And let's begin. We are reading The Invisible Man by H.G. Wells. Chapter One THE STRANGE MAN'S ARRIVAL The stranger came early in February, one wintry day, through a biting wind and a driving snow, the last snowfall of the year, over the down, walking, as it seemed, from Bramblehurst Railway Station, and carrying a little black portmanteau in his thickly-gloved hand. He was wrapped up from head to foot, and the brim of his soft felt hat hid every inch of his face, but the shiny tip of his nose. The snow had piled itself against his shoulders and chest and added a white crest to the burden he carried. He staggered into the coach and horses, more dead than alive as it seemed, and flung his portmanteau down. A fire! he cried, in the name of human charity, a room and a fire. He stamped and shook the snow from off himself in the bar, and followed Mrs. Hall into her guest-parlour to strike his bargain. And with that much introduction, that and a ready acquiescence to terms and a couple of sovereigns flung upon the table, he took up his quarters in the inn. Mrs. Hall lit the fire and left him there while she went to prepare him a meal with her own hands. A guest to stop at Iping in the winter time was an unheard of piece of luck, let alone a guest who was no haggler, and she was resolved to show herself worthy of her good fortune. As soon as the bacon was well under way and Milly her lymphatic aid, had been brisked up a bit by a few deftly chosen expressions of contempt, she carried the cloth, plates, and glasses into the parlor and began to lay them with the utmost éclat. Although the fire was burning up briskly, she was surprised to see that her visitor still wore his hat and coat, standing with his back to her, and staring out of the window at the falling snow in the yard. His gloved hands were clasped behind him, and he seemed to be lost in thought. She noticed that the melted snow that still sprinkled his shoulders dropped upon her carpet. "'Can I take your hat and coat, sir,' she said, and give them a good dry in the kitchen?" "'No,' he said without turning. She was not sure she had heard him, and was about to repeat her question. He turned his head and looked at her over his shoulders. "'I prefer to keep them on,' he said with emphasis, and she noticed that he wore big blue spectacles with side lights and had a bushy side-whisker over his coat-collar that completely hid his cheeks and face. "'Very well, sir,' she said. "'As you like. In a bit the room will be warmer.' He made no answer and had turned his face away from her again. And Mrs. Hall, feeling that her conversational advances were ill timed, laid the rest of the table things in a quick staccato and whisked out of the room. When she returned, he was still standing there, like a man of stone, his back hunched, his collar turned up, his dripping at-brim, turned down, hiding his face and ears completely. She put down the eggs and bacon with considerable emphasis, and called rather than said to him, "'Your lunch is served, sir.' "'Thank you,' he said at the same time, and did not stir until she was closing the door. Then he swung round and approached the table with a certain eager quickness." As she went behind the bar to the kitchen, she heard a sound repeated at regular intervals. Chirk, 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 it went. The sound of a spoon being rapidly whisked round a basin. That girl, she said. There, I clean forgot it. It's her being so long. And while she herself finished mixing the mustard— She gave Millie a few verbal stabs for her excessive slowness. She had cooked the ham and eggs, laid the table, and done everything, while Millie, help indeed, had only succeeded in delaying the mustard, and him a new guest, and wanting to stay. Then she filled the mustard pot, and, putting it with a certain stateliness upon a gold and black tea tray, Carried it into the parlor. She rapped and entered promptly. As she did so, her visitor moved quickly, so that she got but a glimpse of a white object disappearing behind the table. It would seem he was picking something from the floor. She rapped down the mustard pot on the table, and then she noticed the overcoat and hat had been taken off and put over a chair in front of the fire, and a pair of wet boots threatened rust to her steel fender she went to these things resolutely i suppose i may have them to dry now she said in a voice that brooked no denial leave the hat said her visitor in a muffled voice and turning she saw he had raised his head and was sitting and looking at her for a moment she stood gaping at him too surprised to speak He held a white cloth—it was a serviette he had brought with him—over the lower part of his face, so that his mouth and jaws were completely hidden, and that was the reason for his muffled voice. But it was not that which startled Mrs. Hall. It was the fact that all his forehead, above his blue glasses, was covered by a white bandage, and then another covered his ears— leaving not a scrap of his face exposed, excepting only his pink, peaked nose. It was bright pink and shiny, just as it had been at first. He wore a dark brown velvet jacket with a high black linen-lined collar turned up about his neck. The thick black hair, escaping as it could below and between the cross bandages, projected in curious tails and horns, giving him the strangest appearance conceivable. This muffled and bandaged head was so unlike what she had anticipated that for a moment she was rigid. He did not remove the serviette, but remained holding it, as she saw now, with a brown-gloved hand, and regarding her with his inscrutable blue glasses. Leave the hat, he said, speaking very distinctly through the white cloth. Her nerves began to recover from the shock they had received. She placed the hat on the chair again by the fire. I didn't know, sir, she began, that—and she stopped, embarrassed. "'Thank you,' he said dryly, glancing from her to the door, and then at her again. "'I'll have them nicely dried, sir, at once,' she said, and carried his clothes out of the room. She glanced at his white-swathed head and blue goggles again as she was going out the door. But his napkin was still in front of his face." She shivered a little as she closed the door behind her, and her face was eloquent of her surprise and perplexity. I never! she whispered. There! she went quite softly into the kitchen, and was too preoccupied to ask Milly what she was messing about with now when she got there. The visitor sat and listened to her retreating feet. He glanced inquiringly at the window before he removed his serviette and resumed his meal. He took a mouthful, glanced suspiciously at the window, took another mouthful, then rose and, taking the serviette in his hand, walked across the room and pulled the blind down to the top of the white muslin that obscured the lower panes. This left the room in a twilight this done, he returned with an easier air to the table and his meal. "'The poor souls had an accident, or an operation or something,' said Mrs. Hall. "'What a turn them bandages did give me, to be sure!' She put on some more coal, unfolded the clothes-horse, and extended the traveller's coat upon this. "'And they goggles!' "'Why, he looked more like a divin' helmet than a human man!' "'She flung his muffler on a corner of the horse, "'and holdin' that handkercher over his mouth all the time. "'Talkin' through it. "'Perhaps his mouth was hurt, too, maybe.' "'She turned round, as one who suddenly remembers. "'Bless my soul alive,' she said, going off at a tangent.' "'Ain't you done them taters yet, Millie?' "'When Mrs. Hall went to clear away the stranger's lunch, "'her idea that his mouth must also have been cut or disfigured "'in the accident she supposed him to have suffered was confirmed. "'For he was smoking a pipe, "'and all the time that she was in the room "'he never loosened the silk muffler "'he had wrapped about the lower part of his face "'to put the mouthpiece to his lips.' Yet it was not forgetfulness, for she saw he glanced at it as it smoldered out. He sat in the corner with his back to the window blind, and spoke now, having eaten and drunk and been comfortably warmed through, with less aggressive brevity than before. The reflection of the fire lent a kind of red animation to his big spectacles they had lacked hitherto. "'I have some luggage,' he said, at Bramblehurst Station, and he asked her how he could have it sent. He bowed his bandaged head quite politely in acknowledgment of her explanation. "'Tomorrow,' he said, "'there is no speedier delivery?' and seemed quite disappointed when she answered no. Was she quite sure? No man with a trap, who would go over?" Mrs. Hall, nothing loath, answered his questions and developed a conversation. "'It's a steep road by the down, sir,' she said in answer to the question about a trap, and then, snatching at an opening, said, "'It was there a carriage was up a year ago or more, a gentleman killed, besides his coachman. Accident, sir, "'Happens in a moment, don't they?' "'But the visitor was not to be drawn so easily. "'They do,' he said through his muffler, eyeing her quietly through his impenetrable glasses. "'But they take long enough to get well, sir, don't they? "'There was my sister's son, Tom, just cut his arm with a scythe, "'tumbled on it, in the A-field, and bless me, "'he was three months tied up, sir.' You'd hardly believe it. It's regular given me a dread of a scythe, sir. I can quite understand that, said the visitor. He was afraid one time that he'd have to have an operation. He was that bad, sir. The visitor laughed abruptly, a bark of a laugh that he seemed to bite and kill in his mouth. Was he? He said he was sir and no laughing matter to them as had the doing for him as i had my sister bein took up with her little one so much there was bandages to do sir and bandages to undo so that if i may make so bold as to say it sir will you get me some matches said the visitor quite abruptly my pipe is out mrs hall was pulled up suddenly It was certainly rude of him, after telling him all she had done. She gasped at him for a moment, and remembered the two sovereigns. She went for the matches. "'Thanks,' he said concisely, as she put them down, and turned his shoulder upon her, and stared out of the window again. It was altogether too discouraging. Evidently, he was sensitive on the topic of operations and bandages. She did not make so bold as to say, however, after all. But his snubbing way had irritated her, and Milly had a hot time of it that afternoon. The visitor remained in the parlor until four o'clock, without giving the ghost of an excuse for an intrusion. For the most part, he was quite still during that time. It would seem he sat in the growing darkness "'smoking in the firelight, perhaps dozing. "'Once or twice a curious listener "'might have heard him at the coals, "'and for the space of five minutes "'he was audible, pacing the room. "'He seemed to be talking to himself. "'Then the armchair creaked, "'and he sat down again. "'Chapter Two. "'Mr. Teddy Henfrey's First Impressions. At four o'clock, when it was fairly dark and Mrs. Hall was screwing up her courage to go in and ask her visitor if he would take some tea, Teddy Henfrey, the clock-jobber, came into the bar. "'My sakes, Mrs. Hall,' said he, "'but this is terrible weather for thin boots.' The snow outside was falling faster. Mrs. Hall agreed with him, and then noticed— he had his bag, and hit upon a brilliant idea. "'Now you're here, Mr. Teddy,' said she. "'I'd be glad if you'd give the old clock in the parlour a bit of a look. "'Tis going, and it strikes well and hearty, "'but the hour hand won't do nothin' but point at six. And leading the way, she went across to the parlour door, and rapped, and entered. Her visitor, she saw as she opened the door, was seated in the armchair before the fire, dozing, it would seem, with his bandaged head drooping on one side. The only light in the room was the red glow from the fire, which lit his eyes like adverse railway signals, but left his downcast face in darkness and the scanty vestiges of the day that came in through the open door. Everything was ruddy, shadowy, and indistinct to her. The more so, since she had just been lighting the bar lamp, and her eyes were dazzled. But for a second it seemed to her that the man she looked at had an enormous mouth wide open, a vast and incredible mouth that swallowed the whole of the lower portion of his face. It was the sensation of a moment. The white-bound head, the monstrous goggle eyes, and this huge yawn below it. Then he stirred, started up in his chair, put up his hand. She opened the door wide, so that the room was lighter, and she saw him more clearly, with the muffler held to his face just as she had seen him hold the serviette before. The shadows, she fancied, had tricked her. "'Would you mind, sir?' "'This man a-comin' to look at the clock, sir?' she said, recovering from her momentary shock. "'Look at the clock?' he said, staring round in a drowsy manner and speaking over his hand, and then getting more fully awake. "'Certainly.' Mrs. Hall went away to get a lamp, and he rose and stretched himself. Then came the light, and Mr. Teddy Henfrey entering." "'was confronted by this bandaged person. "'He was, he says, taken aback. "'Good afternoon,' said the stranger regarding him, "'as Mr. Henfrey says, "'with a vivid sense of the dark spectacles, "'like a lobster. "'I hope,' said Mr. Henfrey, "'that it's no intrusion,' "'None whatever,' said the stranger, "'though I understand,' he said, turning to Mrs. Hall, "'that this room is really to be mine for my own private use.' "'I thought, sir,' said Mrs. Hall, "'you'd prefer the clock,' she was going to say, "'mended.' "'Certainly,' said the stranger. "'Certainly, but as a rule, I like to be alone and undisturbed.' "'But I'm really glad to have the clock seen to,' "'he said, seeing certain hesitation in Mr. Henfrey's manner. "'Very glad.' "'Mr. Henfrey had intended to apologize and withdraw, "'but this anticipation reassured him. "'The stranger stood round with his back to the fireplace "'and put his hands behind his back. "'And presently,' he said, "'when the clock mending is over, "'I think I should like to have some tea.' but not till the clock-mending is over." Mrs. Hall was about to leave the room. She made no conversational advances this time, because she did not want to be snubbed in front of Mr. Henfrey, when her visitor asked her if she had made any arrangements about his boxes at Bramblehurst. She told him she had mentioned the matter to the postman, and that the carrier could bring them over on the morrow you are certain that is the earliest?" he said. She was certain, with a marked coldness. I should explain, he added, what I was really too cold and fatigued to do before, that I am an experimental investigator. Indeed, sir, said Mrs. Hall, much impressed. "'and my luggage contains apparatus and appliances.' "'Very useful things indeed they are, sir,' said Mrs. Hall. "'And I'm naturally anxious to get on with my inquiries.' "'Of course, sir.' "'My reason for coming to Iping,' he proceeded, "'with a certain deliberation of manner, "'was a desire for solitude.' I do not wish to be disturbed in my work. In addition to my work, an accident—I thought as much, said Mrs. Hall to herself—necessitates a certain retirement. My eyes are sometimes so weak and painful that I have to shut myself up in the dark for hours together, lock myself up—sometimes, now and then, not at present, certainly. At such times the slightest disturbance, the entry of a stranger into the room, is a source of excruciating annoyance to me. It is well these things should be understood. Certainly, sir, said Mrs. Hall, and if I might make so bold as to ask, that, I think, is all said the stranger, with that quietly irresistible air of finality he could assume at will. Mrs. Hall reserved her question, and sympathy, for a better occasion. After Mrs. Hall had left the room, he remained standing in front of the fire, glaring, so Mr. Henfrey puts it, at the clock-mending. Mr. Henfrey not only took off the hands of the clock— and the face but extracted the works and he tried to work in as slow and quiet and unassuming a manner as possible he worked with the lamp close to him and the green shade threw a brilliant light upon his hands and upon the frame and wheels and left the rest of the room shadowy when he looked up colored patches swam in his eyes. Being, constitutionally, of a curious nature, he had removed the works, a quite unnecessary proceeding, with the idea of delaying his departure and perhaps falling into conversation with the stranger. But the stranger stood there, perfectly silent and still. So still it got on Henfrey's nerves, He felt alone in the room, and looked up, and there, grey and dim, were the bandaged head and huge blue lenses, staring fixedly, with a mist of green spots drifting in front of them. It was so uncanny-looking to Henfrey that for a minute they remained staring blankly at one another. Then Henfrey looked down again. "'Very uncomfortable position!' One would like to say something. Should he remark that the weather was very cold for the time of year? He looked up as if to take aim with that introductory shot. The weather, he began. Why don't you finish and go? said the rigid figure, evidently in a state of painfully suppressed rage. All you've got to do is fix the hour hand on its axle. You're simply humbugging. Certainly, sir. One minute more, sir. I overlooked. And Mr. Henfrey finished and went. But he went off feeling excessively annoyed. Damn it, said Mr. Henfrey to himself, trudging down the village through the thawing snow. A man must do a clock at times, sure lie. And again, Can't a man look at you? Ugly! And yet again, Seemingly not. If the police was wanting you, you couldn't be more ropped and bandaged. At Gleason's corner he saw Hall, who had recently married the stranger's hostess at the Coach and Horses, and who now drove the Iping Conveyance, when occasional people required it, to Sitterbridge Junction, coming towards him on his return from that place. Hall had evidently been stopping a bit at Sitterbridge to judge by his driving. "'How do ye, Teddy?' he said, passing. "'You got a rummin' up home,' said Teddy. Hall very sociably pulled up. "'What's that?' he asked. "'Rum-looking customer, stoppin' at the coach and horses,' said Teddy. "'My sakes!' And he proceeded to give Hall a vivid description of his grotesque guest. "'Looks a bit like a disguise, don't it?' "'I'd like to see a man's face if I had him stoppin' in my place,' said Henfrey. "'But women are that trustful where strangers are concerned.' "'He's took your rooms, and he ain't even given a name, Hall.' "'You don't say so,' said Hall, who was a man of sluggish apprehension. "'Yes,' said Teddy. "'By the week. "'Whatever he is, you can't get rid of him under the week. "'And he's got a lot of luggage coming tomorrow, so he says. "'Let's hope it won't be stones and boxes, Hall.' He told Hall how his aunt at Hastings had been swindled by a stranger with empty portmanteau. Altogether, he left Hall vaguely suspicious. "'Get up, old girl,' said Hall. "'I suppose I must see about this.' Teddy trudged on his way, with his mind considerably relieved. Instead of seeing about it, however— Hall, on his return, was severely rated by his wife on the length of time he had spent in Sitterbridge, and his mild inquiries were answered snappishly, and in a manner not to the point. But the seed of suspicion Teddy had sown germinated in the mind of Mr. Hall, in spite of these discouragements. "'You, Wim, don't know everything.' "'said Mr. Hall, resolved to ascertain more about the personality of his guest "'at the earliest possible opportunity. "'And after the stranger had gone to bed, which he did about half-past nine, "'Mr. Hall went very aggressively into the parlor "'and looked very hard at his wife's furniture, "'just to show that the stranger wasn't master there.' and scrutinized closely and a little contemptuously a sheet of mathematical computation the stranger had left. When retiring for the night, he instructed Mrs. Hall to look very closely at the stranger's luggage when it came next day. "'You mind your own business, Hall,' said Mrs. Hall, "'and I'll mind mine.' She was all the more inclined to snap at Hall, because the stranger was undoubtedly an unusually strange sort of stranger, and she was by no means assured about him in her own mind. In the middle of the night she woke up dreaming of huge white heads like turnips that came trailing after her, at the end of interminable necks, and with vast black eyes. But, being a sensible woman, she subdued her terrors, And turned over and went to sleep again. And that was our chapter. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I hope you'll tell your friends and also maybe consider, if you have the means, providing listener support. I appreciate you. And I want to thank you for choosing Definitely Storytime. I'm your host, Jamie. I want to thank Anchor for being here, for being free and providing very simple, useful, and straightforward tools to get my podcast up and running. They automatically upload my episodes to Anchor and to Spotify, and give me the power to share to other platforms of my choosing. Anchor has me feeling confident and empowered to share my voice. You may want to consider Anchor if you have a voice that you would like to share.